vivid genealogy, so bear with me, please. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah and the father of Sheetiel and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ubiad, and Ubiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zodok, and Zodok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Uliad, Uliad, and Uliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of uh, Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let us be blessed by the long reading of his word. Thank you, Pastor Rick. That was by far the most challenging scripture reading we've had, I think, ever, right, in CFC history. So I think you do deserve a clap for that. <laughs> that was good. That was really good. All right. Well, uh, it, it is the first Advent, and so it's really exciting. And uh, aren't these decorations pretty amazing? Yes, right? Um, yeah, so I think there were several people yesterday who uh, did these decorations, and it's just beautiful. But uh, anyway, we're going to start uh, going, launching into Advent, talking about this idea of hope. And this is a great uh, topic because I think this is something that we all need to have is this sense of real hope, certainty of um, what's to come. As I look back uh, just in this past year, uh, 2018, uh, you know, I realized I was just looking back and there's a lot of things that I had hoped for and things that I'm grateful, you know, came to pass. Um, you know, I just, I think I shared with this a couple weeks ago, shared with you that uh, I'm just so grateful for our church and grateful for how I feel like the Lord has really used our church in so many ways to uh, reach out to the community 
and I see the Lord at work in so many different ways. I'm, I'm thankful uh, just to see what God has done in my kids and in their lives. And uh, so there's a lot of things I'm very, very joyful and grateful for and, that, and things that I really hope for that has come to pass. So I'm very, very grateful for that. But like probably everyone else, uh, there's a lot of things that, that I dreamed about that I was hoping for that didn't come to pass uh, that led to some disappointments as well. And uh, sometimes when these things I have, these, I, these dreams and these hopes that I've got in my mind when they don't come to pass, it just uh, leads not only to disappointment but frustration and sometimes just um, even discouragement. And I think we all experience what this means, right? Uh, whether it's in your families, uh, whether it's in your workplace, um, maybe your own life, and uh, maybe some things in your own heart, in your own life, where you just feel like, man, uh, am I ever going to get through this? You know, am I ever going to overcome this? And you get discouraged and uh, you s still feel like it's, uh, there's kind of a shroud of darkness. And so um, this idea of hope is something that's very, very important. And my prayer is, believe it or not, this genealogy that we just read is something that will give you great hope uh, this morning. And uh, you're wondering, how can a genealogy give me hope? <laughs> you know, what relevance does a bunch of Old Testament names that I feel like has no real bearing on my life, how can this give me hope? And that's what I want to talk about. So before we go into it a little bit more, I'm going to just ask us, uh, could you just join me in prayer one more time? And uh, let's just really ask the Lord to... Uh, open our hearts and to uh, more, more so open up his word uh, to our hearts. Let's uh, ask the Lord to do that for us as we go into this. God, you are, um, you are the God of hope. You have sent your son Jesus into this world. And because of Jesus, we have been born again into this living hope that is imperishable, that will never fade. And... Lord, we need to hear this good news. We thank you so much for this good news to our hearts. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. And Lord, as we look into your word, uh, we just read a bunch of these names, uh, these, this genealogy. And I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, take this word and open up our hearts. Help us to see the hope of your glory of Christ in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've always found it very interesting that, you know, of all the ways that the way that the New Testament opens, right? I mean, and God could have written his word any other way. He could have shown us this amazing miracle. He could have just really uh, wowed us and impressed us with something pretty uh, amazing. That of all the ways, why would God choose to open up the New Testament with a genealogy of all things, Right? I mean, the Old Testament, it's, it's leading to the, the birth of Christ. Christ is, is uh, you know, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Every character is pointing to Jesus in some way in the, in the Old Testament. And then finally, we get this genealogy of all the ways to start, start us off, right? This is not the stuff of modern day, like, you know, New York Times bestseller novels, right? This is not how to capture an audience's attention. This is not how to capture a modern day reader's attention, right? 
Um, you've got to hook them. You've got to start off with something that's going to grab their attention. But this is not how Matthew starts off his gospel. Um, but this genealogy, this, this way that he starts off, is extremely, extremely compelling for the average Jewish person who's reading this. And you're going to have to go back culturally 2,000 years ago to how a typical Jewish person would have read this genealogy. Um, if you ever notice in the Old Testament, there are, there are tons of genealogies, lists, right? You go through the book of Numbers, and uh, usually when people get to that part, it's like, oh, you know, this is too much, and they kind of skip over that. But for the Jewish culture, genealogies were extremely important to establish a person's true identity. Much like how maybe we use resumes today to establish our, our identity. And in our resumes, when you apply for work, when you apply for uh, school or something like that, what are you going to list? You're going to list your educational accomplishments. You're going to list your work experience, all your achievements, your abilities, all the awards, honors you've won, all the dis distinct, uh, distinctions, all of those things. And that's how a person in our society, in Western society, knows who you are, based on all of these external type of things. But for a Jewish person, the way that they will know who you are is based on your family. It was a much more communal culture. And as a communal culture, they looked at what is your family background? Now, as a Korean American, I totally get this. Because in Korean American culture, and I think Chinese culture, uh, Asian culture is very similar, but um, the first thing that parents want to know if you bring home a boyfriend, girlfriend, is the first question they'll ask is, what's your family background, right? Who are their parents? Um, and then they'll ask about school, education, <laughs> you know, all those things. But that's the first thing that the Korean parents want to know. What kind of family do they come from? Do they come from a good family? Do they come from a bad family? You know, what, what's our family history like? Uh, that was, that's very, very important in Asian culture. And it's the same way with Jewish culture as well. So Matthew, in a very brilliant way, if he's going to establish the true identity of who Jesus is, and the Jewish person is going to ask, well, what family does Jesus come from? What's his family background? This is how Matthew does it. He says, okay, let me tell you. He comes from two really, really important people. From the line of Abraham and the line of David. Why Abraham David? Because Abraham was the one that God had given these promises that through you all the nations will be blessed. And we know that the Messiah is going to come from Abraham, but also David, because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this covenant with David that on your throne, I am going to put a king who will reign forever and ever. And so every Jewish person was expecting that this Messiah will come from Abraham and David's line. Now, unlike today though, and this is what's interesting about this genealogy. Um, today, you hear about this, about people doctoring their resumes, right? And so you hear about sometimes these even major like uh, CEOs or, you know, just 
head football coach or whatever. I mean, you hear about all these major figures and they've somehow altered their resume and they actually didn't graduate from the school that they said that they graduated from. They, didn't, they never went to that school or they never had that work experience. And so they alter it, why? To, to uh, make them more, look more impressive, right? And that was actually common with genealogical records back then as well. It was known that King Herod, who was the king of Israel at the time, he actually took his own genealogy, and believe it or not, he, took, he doctored it and took away all the sketchy, like shady names out of his genealogy to make it more impressive, to make it more acceptable. That's what King Herod did. And that was actually very common at this time. But when you look at this genealogy in Matthew, Matthew actually does the very opposite. He not only does not alter the genealogy in any single way, not only does he preserve every single name in this genealogical record, but one thing that's interesting about Matthew's genealogy is that he purposely includes names that would be very controversial. He purposely includes these names that when the average Jewish person is going to read this, I mean, they're going to they're going to be floored because some of these names are very scandalous. They're, they're very shocking in Jewish history. This was actually a genealogy that was posted in the temple and included all these patriarchs, the, name, the, the males. But what Matthew does is he adds five females to this genealogy. And these are females that would not necessarily have... Um, if anyone were making up the gospel or anyone were making up Christianity, it would not have helped that cause. But the only reason why Matthew does it is because I think he's trying to show us something about the nature of the gospel, about who Jesus is. So in this genealogy, uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but how many of you, okay, this is like classroom time, okay? So how many of you can tell me how many women are in this genealogy? Oh, I saw it. Oh, Chastity, you got it. <laughs> okay, there are five women listed in this genealogy. That's pretty good. All right. Were you like, were you, did you look for those names or how? Okay. Did I say five? No. Oh, my goodness. I got, I got to re-listen to the podcast. <laughs> all right, all right. That's, I gave it away. Mimi says things like that. that you know, sometimes you say these things like, okay, all right. Okay, she's right. She's right. All right, five women, five women. That's true. Now, um, I, mean, what's, I think what's interesting about that is this. First of all, if you understand that culture, um, including women into a genealogical record would have done nothing that would have helped, again, people be convinced of the truth of what he's trying to say. Uh, back then, actually, women's voices were silenced. They only looked at the men. It was a very patriarchal culture. So the fact that Matthew includes these five women um, says something. But not only that, but if you look at the type of women that Matthew includes, um, these are not just any kind of women. They were involved in, again, some of the most shocking and sordid stories in the Bible. So let's talk about some of these women. For example, the first woman that's mentioned in this record is Tamar. Tamar. And 
If you know about Tamar, she was actually the Canaanite woman who posed literally as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. A complete act of incest and going everything against what the Bible says. And this is Tamar that's included. And then Matthew includes the fact that both Perez and, and Zerah were born to Tamar, but this idea um, in Zerah, we know, was this, you know, another kind of sketchy figure that's listed in the Bible. And what Matthew is trying to show us, even in Tamar, including her story in this genealogy, is that the Messiah is going to come out of this completely dysfunctional family, right? Completely dysfunctional. The next person who's listed in this genealogy is this woman named Rahab. And if you know about Rahab, she is also a Canaanite woman who is a prostitute, who who, uh, is a prostitute for a living. And this is Rahab, the next person that Matthew lists. Next in line, uh, Matthew, in verse 6, he talks about King David. And we get to David and we think, wow, the greatest king of Israel, famous, right? Um, a man after God's own heart. That's how a lot of us know King David, how we would read him. But if you look at Matthew, Matthew does not put David in a flattering light. Instead, Matthew, the way he describes it is this. He says, and David was a father of Solomon. And then he says, by the wife of Uriah. Now, if you just read this, the, the wife of Uriah, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, it's very easy to overlook this detail in the genealogy. Solomon's mother, we would also know, know her name by the name of Bathsheba, right? That's her name. So why doesn't Matthew simply write Bathsheba? Why does he have to say Uriah's, uh, Uriah's wife? Why? When the average Jewish person is reading this, they think, Uriah, Uriah, who is Uriah? Here's who, who Uriah was. David, as he's being chased by, pursued by Saul in the wilderness, David has this select group of mighty men, right? These, these guys are like the secret service agents for David. They'll, they'll do anything and everything to protect David's life. They'll, they'll risk their own life to make sure that David lives. These are the mighty men. And these guys were, I mean, these guys were heroes, right? Ferocious heroes. They just, there's like all these uh, stories of how many people that they slaughtered and all of that. So these guys were courageous, brave, strong. And one of them is this guy named Uriah. Now, when David ascends to become the king of Israel, David, we, we know, in 2 Samuel, he lusts after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then in lusting after her, he actually forces her to sleep with him. And then because they're going to have a child together, what David does is this. He orders Uriah to the very fiercest part of battle so that he can be killed. So he betrays the person who's most loyal to him, Uriah. And his child that they have together is this guy named Solomon, this king. 
Matthew purposely refers to her as Uriah's wife. Why? It's a slam on David. It's a reminder of how scandalous this story really is. And out of this mess comes the Messiah. This is what Matthew is establishing through this. And you know what? We're, we're focusing on the women in this. Um, next time I'm going to focus on the men. <laughs> you know, you think this is bad. The men are even worse, <laughs> as men, men usually are. <laughs> but what do all these have in common, right, these women? If you look at just the women, what they have in common is this. They were all outsiders, moral spiritual outsiders. Uh, they were adulterers, prostitutes. They committed incest. Um, and then David, murder, betrayer. They were the moral rejects, the moral failures. Now, this does not look very impressive, this genealogy, if you look at it like that. And then there's one other woman who's mentioned in this gene genealogy. And she is a good woman. She is a woman of faith. But she is a Moabitess. And if you know about Moabite in Israel, they were, they were pretty strong enemies with each other. And this is Ruth. And to the Jews, Moabites were completely unclean. They were not allowed to go into the, the tabernacle, into the temple for worship because you're on the outside. You're unacceptable. Moabites were considered despised enemies. So, what does this show us? I just focus on these four women in this genealogy. And this is a gene these four women are women that Matthew purposely included, added into this genealogical record to show us something to make a point. And what is the point? Well, I just want to share really just a couple brief thoughts this morning. One is that the birth of Christ, the message of Christmas, is a message that Jesus comes from and for all the outsiders, the shameful, the guilty, the failures. This is the message of why Jesus would come. He would come out of this kind of lineage. Matthew doesn't doctor anything about this. Why? Because this is the purpose of why Jesus would come. This is the hope. This is the reminder. This past week at Elac, uh, we were having, we're going through the Gospel of Mark in our Bible studies at Elac. And we're talking about Mark chapter 2. And I was reminded in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus comes and he calls Levi, hey, come follow me. And Levi, this tax collector, knew uh, of, of his corruption. He knew he was on the outside. And Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, you know, they don't get it. And they're just, you know, they are taking the moral high ground. And they're looking down at people like Levi. And um, Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus did not come for the healthy he came for the sick. He does not call the righteous, but sinners. But when Jesus says this, when he comes for not the, not the healthy, but the sick, 
sinners, not the righteous. He's not saying that there's two different groups of people out there. There's a really healthy kind, and then there's an unhealthy kind. There's a really good people, and then there's a really bad people. That's not the point Jesus is making, right? It's, it's, it's his sarcastic way of saying that if you think that you are healthy, if you think that you are righteous, you're actually sick. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Everyone that we're all completely lost without Jesus, completely sinful. This is the message of the gospel. This is what the Bible is saying. And the hope of Christmas is that if you would repent, if you would put your faith in Jesus, that Jesus can accept and forgive anybody. But you've got to see your sickness first. You've got to see your illness first before you could get the cure. And this is a point. Some of you struggle with this question. You've been a Christian for a while. And uh, the reason why we need to hear the good news over and over again is because you ask yourself this question, can God really love someone like me, right? Can God use my life to really make a difference for his kingdom? Can God really use someone like me? I've, I really have blown it. And if you're asking yourself this question, actually, you are the ones, you are the kind of people that's most usable by God. No matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter your background, the birth of Jesus means that God is able to redeem and he's able to take anyone, any failure, and he's able to redeem that and give you hope that you are loved, that he can use you. This is a message of Jesus. Those who are feeling on the outside, those who feel you are too broken, too damaged, too shameful, um, that God is the one who actually takes away your shame. You know, we live in a culture and we live in a society that tells us everyone is going to tell you you're only as good as your skills. You're only as good as your beauty, right? You're only as good as your position you're only as good as your grades, what others think of you, your talents, all these things. You're only as good as those things. That's what everyone's going to tell you, that you base your worth on these things. But Jesus comes for the people who know, you know what, I don't have it all together at all. I know my flaws. I know my weaknesses. I know my failures. I know these things. And yet Jesus says, but you're completely loved that he can use you in your weakness, that he is the one who takes away the guilt. He's the one who takes the broken, and he's able to use the broken, the weak, the failures, and these are people that God will, will say, here's my grace. I'm going to use these people. But the second thing I'm going to share is this. If you look at this genealogy, um, the birth of Christ also means that God is actively redeeming despite how slow or absent God may seem. It may seem like God is silent. But if you look at this genealogy, Abraham to David to the Christ, this promise of the Messiah, that God will send the Messiah, took 2,000 years to be accomplished. And during this time, in these 2,000 years, as you could even just see from these four women 
there is a lot of dysfunction and there is a lot of mess. And this promise, it goes all the way back to Abraham. You, you just kind of wonder, like, how is God going to redeem this situation? I mean, all these people, we tend to make a mess, right? And yet God promises to Abraham, I'm going to do this. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And if you look at every, virtually every story in the Bible, it's, it's a story of these characters, these people who have major, major flaws, major weaknesses, sins. And their flaws brings these twists and turns into the story, but God is able to redeem this person, and he's able to redeem the situation in such a way so that no one else at the end of the story could have, could have imagined how this would have turned out. No one could have imagined that this would turn out in a redemptive way. You look at the story of Joseph, right? God makes this promise to Joseph that you're going to be a leader among your brothers. You're going to be able to lead them. And the way that Joseph's path takes, right? He gets betrayed, he gets sold as a slave, and he gets falsely accused, and all these things happen. And so there's all these twists and turns, and um, all these things happen before finally he becomes the second behind Pharaoh. And then God fulfills that promise. But that story is a story that happens with all of us as well. I think a lot of times uh, we look to our situation and we look at the world and we look at sometimes our lives and we get really discouraged and we lose hope because we think, where is God in all of this? Uh, Where is he at work? I don't see it. In fact, God seems awfully absent to me. And he seems really slow. I wish God would just, you know, get on the move. I wish he would just do something about this. I wish he would just redeem this, right? I wish he would just take care of this mess. And that's, that's our hearts. Uh, we're just impatient, right? And we want things to happen right away. And when we don't understand things, then uh, we get upset and, and we get discouraged or we just get exhausted. I have some friends uh, right now, uh, you, when I went back uh, to China just, you know, a month ago, right? Uh, it's, it's already been a month or so. But, um, yeah, you know, I just, I've been hearing of all these people who are getting kicked out of the country, uh, all these missionaries. Uh, one of my friends, their co-worker, got uh, interrogated by the police right when they were at the airport for about 14 hours, and, uh, and then they got kicked out. And then, um, you know, you hear about some of the control that's happening throughout the country, and you hear about all these things, and, and it just seems like, okay, now what, you know? Uh, these people's lives, the missionaries, what do they do now? Where are they going to go? This is all they've known. This is what they've devoted their lives to, right? Uh, there's all these question marks. And then for the people who are in the country, some of these churches, what are they going to do, right? The, the government's cracking down hard in some places in China. And this is what's happening. And yet, if Matthew's genealogy tells us something, it's this, that God is not panicking, <laughs> He knows fully what's going on, and he's able to redeem these very, very difficult situations. And the kingdom of God does not depend upon our strength and our successful efforts and abilities to do it. It depends on God. Just here in our church this past year, uh, you know, something that we didn't anticipate. Just in this past year, we lost two 
very dear sisters in our church. Sandra Leung, Dora Lee, whose service we will have, memorial service we will have this Saturday. And to be honest with you, I mean, when I look at these women, they were two among two of the most beautiful women that I've met, you know, since I've been here at CFC. These two women who love Jesus, uh, these two women who uh, just really, they were much too young. And these two women that when you, you, when you look at it on the, the surface, they had just had so much to offer, so much to offer to the people around them, to our church, to our community. Uh, two women who um, were so Christ-like in their love and their faith. And, you know, I wondered, I would wonder as, as I pray, and God, why? Like, why would you take these two women? We prayed for healing, and we saw glimpses of healing. We, 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 we saw what we felt were miraculous uh, answers to prayer as we felt like they were progressing uh, physically and things were looking hopeful only to uh, see that they would eventually pass away and we struggle in these moments to see where is God's purpose in this where is God's redemptive purpose where where's God did he not answer our prayers but even when we don't see and when we, when we can't make sense of why in these situations, if you look at the scriptures and you look at the promises of God and you look at his faithfulness and you look at how God goes into every, every situation that's broken, every situation that looks hopeless, and God is able to by his power by his grace bring about hope at the end he's able to accomplish what he promised he would say this is what brings our hearts hope god will never well i shouldn't say never but he hardly ever acts according to our timing and our understanding of things he doesn't god is god and just he's not going to operate on our time scale his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But he always will act in a way that's wisest, that's best in the overall scheme of things because he's always in control. There's a promise in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, and I'm just going to read this to you where Paul says this, This is wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... And here Paul takes this promise, this, this hopeful promise from the book of Isaiah where he writes, what no eye has seen nor ear heard 
nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Brothers and sisters, we do not see right now completely the picture. We do not hear everything we want to hear. Uh, There is a lot in our lives that is still unaccomplished. There is still a lot in this world that we wonder why. And yet, the promise is you can't even imagine in the end what God has prepared for those of us who love him. The birth of Christ is a, is a picture of hope because this is where the Messiah would come from. The Tamars, the Rahabs, Ruth, Bathsheba. God is a great redeemer and fulfiller of his promise because his promise always comes true. And this is true hope. And we, we, we base our hope on the fact that as we read this, right, this is not just some nice story. I'm not here just to, to give you this sort of optimistic, just be helpful. It's a genealogy that's based on fact, history. It's based on the fact that Jesus has come into this world and he has identified with you and I. In the meantime, Jesus promises he will walk with you in all of our struggles. He will walk with us to the very end because he has overcome death and we will be with him forever. As we take communion uh, right now, we remember this, that the reason why Jesus was born is really simple. Uh, That he would be born so that he could die. Jesus came into this world to go to the cross. And this cross for us would be our greatest gift because through the cross of Jesus, through his death on the cross, what it would accomplish is it would accomplish the forgiveness of our sins, being reconciled with him forever. And because we are with God forever, this gift of eternal life, of knowing God, um, we, we have the joy and we have this unceasing hope. And he did this, why? He did this for the joy that was set before him. The joy that in his death, he would see that this would accomplish the greatest good of all to bring us to God. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, as we prepare our hearts for communion, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus would take all the shame. He would take all our sin. But he wasn't looking at the shame and the sin. He would, look at the, he would look at the result. He would look at God. He would set his eyes upon him. And he would see that what he would do in the end, by taking our shame, our guilt, our sin upon himself on the cross, is that we too now 
would be able to walk with God, to know him, to have that joy of looking to God himself as our ultimate hope and rest. So this table is for you who have put your faith in Jesus. And this table is the opportunity for us to come and to confess our sins and to once again confess Jesus is our Lord and Savior who gave himself for us. And so when you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come and partake of this communion.